There we have a little variety in worship this morning between the children singing and Go Tell It on the Mountain. And it's, um, we're great, great to see you here as we're worshiping the Lord together. And um, hope you're enjoying the worship as we proceed through this morning as well. Well, I titled this morning's message, Married to the Perfect Husband. So to kick us off, I asked if my wife would come up and give a testimony. And, and um, she's not coming. <laughs> but um, actually, you know, um, for, for Janet to be able to talk about a perfect husband, she'd have to talk to you this morning about her first marriage. Now, some of you are seeing her thinking, I didn't know Janet was married before. And uh, you see, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture today where the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 brings in the illustration of marriage. And in it, he's showing how just like a husband, a wife is freed to be joined to Christ. She's freed from really the, the oversight of the law. She's now freed to be joined to Jesus Christ. And that comes through salvation. And my wife, Janet, was um, a sophomore at Temple University. Um, and she trusted Christ through Campus Crusade for Christ. And we didn't meet till probably about six years later. So I can truthfully say that her first marriage was the one in which she was married to the perfect husband because that was Jesus Christ. And guys, we'd have to say the same thing because we as well are joined to Jesus Christ through the salvation experience and we're released from the bondage to the law and we're united with Christ just in a beautiful relationship. And Paul's going to share that this morning. And he uses marriage in the beginning of our passage to show that illustration about how we are, are freed from that which we were bound to before as we are joined together in unity with Jesus Christ. So before we begin, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for this beautiful aspect of what it means to know Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are able to let go of those things that we were bound to before knowing Christ. And we were given freedom, the, only, the freedom that only can come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come together this morning, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts and help us to know you better. Help us, Father, to grow in our walk with you. I pray that, Lord, that your scripture would reveal things to us this morning, things that you would want to teach us. And Lord, I pray that we would become that much closer to you as a result of studying your word, reading it together, and help us to encourage one another as we come together to get today as the body of Christ. Father, do a great work within us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we go through Romans chapter 7, last week we were on Romans chapter 6, and it's often said that um, Paul gives a defense of grace in Romans chapter 6, and in Romans chapter 7, Paul is giving a defense of the law. Now, for some people, that almost seems like it shouldn't go together because it almost, in many people's minds, there's this division between grace and law where one is good and one is bad. And what Paul is doing this morning, basically, is he's showing us that both of these things are really good. However, there's this ongoing tension that we all feel between grace and law. And it, many people tend to to want to embrace the one and totally reject the other. Back in Paul's day, um, just like in our day today, um, people had this fear 
that if they were freed from the law, that it would result in sinful living without any kind of moral boundaries at all. And that is so far from the truth because what Paul does is he turns the table on that argument and what he shows is truly that those who are under the law are the ones who are bound to sin. And it's those who are freed from the law that go on with the ability to live a life where we're moving away from sin and we're reflecting Jesus Christ more and more. Paul used the, the, um, the word law 19 times in Romans chapter 7. And as you study the Bible, when you see that a word is used 19 times in one chapter, it should bring your attention to thinking, wow, it must be pretty important, this concept of the law. So I'd like to talk about, before we read today's passage, just to make sure we have a little better understanding of what Paul's referring to when he says the law. You see, the law was a collection of rules and regulations that God gave to the nation of Israel to maintain and help them to stay in a right relationship with God. And there's all different kind of laws that are out there. Some laws showed Israel how they should obey and please God, the Ten Commandments are an example of that kind of law. Some of the laws were given to show Israel how they were to worship and atone for their sin. And the sacrificial system is an example of that kind of law and all of the rules that came along with the sacrificial system. There were other laws that were given to Israel to help them to show how they should be distinct from all of the nations that were around them. Some of the dietary rules and some of the clothing regulations are examples of these kind of rules within the system of the law. Now, um, as we talk about these different kind of laws and everything, I hope that most of you today are saying, wow, I think I should follow some of these laws because some of them are pretty good for us to follow. Like, you shall not murder. Um, you know, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. These are things that I'm hoping that we all agree, hey, they'd be pretty good ones to follow. But then there's some others that we don't follow today or necessarily promote even within the church. Uh, for example, um, one of the clothing regula regulations says, you shall not wear a garment that has two different fabrics in the same garment. There are those that said that you shall not wear any tattoo markings on your body. See, we've kind of moved away from some of the laws. So my question is, if we're not following the law today and we're not under, per se, the law today, why should this matter to us and why should you bother staying awake through this sermon? <laughs> well, here's what I want to do. I want to have you think of the law this way. Think of the law as anything that you do to earn God's favor or to achieve righteousness apart from faith alone in Jesus Christ. Folks, there's a lot of things that we do as believers in Jesus Christ where maybe it's subtle, but we're trying to earn righteousness apart from faith alone in Jesus Christ. I'll give you a couple examples. Prayer, reading the Bible, teaching Sunday school, being baptized, giving financially to the church. You see, these are things that so many of us do thinking we're earning God's favor by doing these things. And they're really good things. But anything apart from faith alone in Jesus Christ helps, starts to make you now follow the law in your life 
rather than tr complete trust in Jesus Christ alone for your standing, for your righteousness before God. And it's a trap that we can all fall into. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Our ushers will be glad to give you one this morning. I'm going to have the text up on the screen behind me. But, uh, and also, if you don't have a Bible at home, take this as our gift to you. We'd love you to have it. But turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then... If while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. You see, before you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you were bound to the law. See, we're freed from it through Jesus Christ, but you were bound to the law. And the problem with that was you had to, if you wanted to earn a righteous standing before God, you needed to follow the law completely and perfectly without any exception. And you know the sad part is? That's an impossible thing to do. There's only one person who ever lived that completely followed the law fully, and that was Jesus Christ. And what we're looking at this morning is, we are seeing that we've been freed from that. Now, if, um, I know we've shared this um, question from the pulpit before, but Evangelism Explosion came up with two questions that they used to ask people when they would train in evangelism. And I've used these questions quite a bit over my lifetime. And the question is, if you're talking to somebody about the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the question is, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I allow you into heaven what would you say? Now, many of the answers that I get back from people in that question have to do with things like, well, I try really hard. Or, you know, I, well, looking back, I think I've been good enough. I, th I think I'm okay. Or, well, compared to other people, I think I'm pretty good. So I think I should be okay. Now, sadly and thankfully, those are the wrong answers. Now, the reason I say sadly is, because there, there's nothing we can ever do to be good enough. It's impossible. We can't be good enough. So anybody that's holding on to those statements of saying, I can do this, or I was good enough, they're missing the target because you can't be good enough. Now, the reason I said, thankfully, that's the wrong answer is because we can stop our striving. So many of us are striving, even if we don't even realize it, we strive to earn God's favor. It's like, oh, I have to go to church. Oh, I have to teach Sunday school. Oh, I have to give more. 
But you see, you're not earning God's favor in doing that because you can't. The, the answers I gave, if you notice, a common denominator was the word I. I am good enough. I think I'm okay. Compared to other people, I. I try hard. It's all the focus is on I. But the only correct answer to that question of why God should allow you into heaven is Jesus Christ. Now, you could phrase it a number of different ways. You could say, you know, I trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, or I recognize my need for a Savior, and I trusted Jesus Christ as Lord. But if your answer is Jesus Christ, that is what God is looking for. Because we cannot be righteous on our own. And the only way that God will look at you as righteous is when they call it the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. When his righteousness, he fulfilled the law completely and perfectly. And as, as um, chapter 7, verse 4 says, if you look at verse 4 for a moment, I'll put it back on the screen. It says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. You see, you died to the law, not by your own effort, but through the body of Christ. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law when he went to the cross and gave up his life. He gave up his life so that he could get victory over sin and death, not for himself, but for you. So, if you want to be released from the law, it comes through the body of Jesus Christ, not through your own effort. Now, follow this progression with me. First thing you, what Paul's telling us here is you trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Then it says, you are now you die to the law, and then it goes on to say you're joined to Christ. Now, what I don't want you to walk away with is thinking that this is some kind of long progression and there's months or years between each of those steps. This is really the salvation experience. As we trust Christ as Savior, at that moment, we die to the law, and now we are free to be joined to another, just like in marriage. Like the husband dies, and now we're free to marry someone else, and we become united with Jesus Christ. It all happens, but the key to it is we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, why did God do all this? Why did he allow us to die to the law and join us to Jesus Christ? Was it so well, we can walk away from the law and go on sinning and do whatever we want to do? Well, Paul says other places in Romans, may it never be. Absolutely not. But verse 6 gives us that. It says, but now we have been released. I'll put it up. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound. And here's the word, so that. Important phrase. What came before is so that. So that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. You see, God wants us to walk and live in newness of the spirit and not in the old ways. Here's the... Um, the first point I'd like to give you this morning is, you are united with Christ to bear fruit for God. See, we're not united with Christ so that we can go on sinning. We're united with Jesus Christ so that we can bear fruit for God. You see, the only fruit that's pleasing and acceptable to God is that comes from the Spirit of God living within us, indwelling us, and as we produce the actions that come with it, all of, once you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, then what ends up happening is 
all of your new actions, thoughts, behaviors, everything you do comes from within inside of you now. And what God calls it, it is the fruit that comes from a newness of living in the Spirit. See, before that, it was just empty works on our part. And see, and that's what God now looks upon as acceptable. See, death to the law does not make sinners. And that's what they were so afraid of. But you see, true death to the law makes servants for God. And that's how we want to live our lives, as we want to be servants for God, where the, what's coming out of us is coming out of the fruit of the Spirit. As we move on, I want to just um, share with you that what does it really mean, this kind of this concept of this newness of the Spirit? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, several of the Old Testament prophets prophesied about this coming change. Because back in the Old Testament, they were living under what was the Old Covenant. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, and Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, are two examples where the prophets predicted a day that was to come where we would be under a new covenant relationship with God. The Old Covenant would be gone, and we'd be living under the New Covenant. And it was a completely new relationship in our unity and fellowship with God. I'm going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, and I want to read two verses for you. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You see, we have a completely new dynamic to our relationship here with Jesus Christ and our fellowship with God. It's coming through the newness of the Spirit. And he gives us, Ezekiel talks about the key to this in verse 27. I will put my Spirit within you. Something that wasn't happening. The Old Testament saints were not indwelt by the Spirit of God. That came after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'll put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You see, the key to us living out the Christian life, the key to our struggle, and we're going to see a real struggle coming in the rest of chapter 7 with sin, but the key to our struggle with sin is the Spirit of God within us. It's a whole new dynamic and relationship that came about. The second point that I'd like to make this morning is this. You are dead to the law, but alive in the Spirit. Paul talks a lot here about being dead to the law, but we're dead to the law, and the contrast is we're now alive in the Spirit. You see, God's, God's Spirit works within us from the inside, and that produces the fruit that comes out. So our ability to follow and please God now doesn't come from a list of us following rules and regulations, but it comes from the Spirit's work within us. I want to talk about following rules and regulations. I'll give you an example. Back in 2014, the Food and Drug Administration started making mandated requirements that um, chain restaurants and movie theaters and grocery stores and pizza places were required to put the calorie count from the products they sell and post them on their menus and wherever it was. Before that, it was not a mandated requirement. And as they made those changes, 93% of the respondents of a public health survey said that these were really important things to do. The vast majority of Americans said, with that additional information on calories, that they would change their calorie consumption because of it. Well, we're about a year and a half to two years in, 
And there's one problem. It didn't change a thing. The FDA did 31 studies, detailed studies of consumer behavior. And what they found out was that Americans didn't change their calorie intake at all. And here's their summary statement after doing 31 studies. The best design studies show that calorie labels do not have the desired effect in reducing total calories ordered. It took 31 studies to do that. Now, if we go back and look at the Old Testament, I can tell you we don't have to do 31 studies to show that the nation of Israel, who were God's chosen people, they were the ones who received God's law directly given to them. We don't need 31 studies to show us that the nation of Israel did not change their sin patterns because they were given God's law. I want to just um, help you understand a cycle here. Look at, if we think about Israel's obedience over all of those centuries, there was a recurring cycle. What you had was you had faithfulness followed by rebellion, followed by the judgment of God, followed by repentance, back to faithfulness, back to guess what? Rebellion, God's judgment, then you would have repentance and faithfulness again. But if you look through Scripture, what you'll see is this, re this cycle repeated itself over and over and over again, but the periods of faithfulness were about like this. They were really short. And the periods of rebellion were about like this, and they went on a long time because God was a very patient God. But people would see the judgment of God, and they would repent, and what would they do all over again? Go back into a period of rebellion, followed by just a very short time of faithfulness. You see, a list of rules and regulations does not change human behavior, and we're going to see as we go a little further, Paul's going to show us why. And it's because of the sin nature that's living within us, and we all have it. Now, I would like to, I want to touch on something, though. I, I mentioned in, in verse 6, God said that word, so that, you know, you are now united with Christ, you know, you've died to the law, so that now we could serve in newness of the Spirit. Um, I was talking to Austin Delgado, our, our director of outreach, earlier this week, and I was asking him how things were going with our short-term missions trips. If you remember, about three or four weeks ago, Austin came up here and he gave a description of our upcoming May trip to, the, to Holland, and then we have a July trip to New York City, and, um, and actually I'm going to throw in, I know Pastor Jeremy's in here somewhere, um, Jeremy has a trip planned in, the, in July for the youth group where they're going on a trip with New Tribes Mission. We strategically picked these opportunities because what we want to do is equip our people to serve God better. And all three of these trips are evangelism trips that are training people to do evangelism. Now, on the Holland trip, Austin was telling me, I think there's, not, there's seven total spots. Austin's one of them. So now we have Austin and two others committed to Holland, which allows us to fit four more people. To tell you the truth, I thought that trip was going to fill up in the first week or two. Now, New York City, we're taking, we have room for 12 people to go. Um, the Holland trip, it's an opportunity. They're doing a five-year evangelism project, project in Holland, countrywide evangelism project, and our church is going to be part of it, and they're going to train people in evangelism and go out and have the opportunity to do evangelism. The trip to New York City is with a mission agency called Global Gates, Global Gates Mission. It's a fantastic organization. As I've looked into their website and checked into a little bit more, I got references on it. It's, they're doing an incredible work, and there's something happening in the world right now. It's called the diaspora. 
What's happening is people from other countries all around the world are immigrating to other countries and many have come to the United States. The number of Muslims that we have living within a two-hour drive from Yardley, Pennsylvania is unbelievable. So what this missions project is, it's going up to New York City and it's a, it's a, it's a week-long trip and in the morning they're equipping and training people how to share the good news of Jesus Christ with Muslims. And in the afternoon, the people are going out and actually doing it under a guided way. And it's a great training and equipping opportunity. And I would just want to encourage our church. Oh, by the way, and in the youth group, um, what Jeremy's put on the calendar is a trip with New Tribes Mission to take the teenagers on a week-long intensive training and equipping opportunity to learn how to share the good news of Jesus Christ and be equipped to do what? to serve in newness of the Spirit, as the Bible's telling us here this morning. So I know Austin's going to be um, sharing a little bit about this in a couple weeks to give a little update, but my hope is this, that you leave here this morning and that you prayerfully consider being part of one of these trips and equipping yourself to go out and share the good news and be trained in incredible ways through some really strong missions organizations. These are great opportunities. But now that that little commercial's over, let's go back to Romans 7, and I want to pick up in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, as we look at this and we see that sin is, you know, it says we're, we're sin is dead, I, don't think, I didn't highlight the one point that I put up here for the second point today. You are dead to the law, but alive in the Spirit. And now Paul is moving forward, and he's talking here in verses 7 and 8. He's giving us an example of one of the ways that the law produced more sin in Paul's life. What Paul was saying was basically, he used the example of coveting. And he said, until the law said, you shall not covet, Paul said, I wasn't even aware of coveting. But what happened was, the law now incited me to covet all the more. See, we're, we're very similar to this in, in so many ways in our lives. Tom, Pastor Tom last week was preaching through Romans 6, and he gave the example of that song back in the 60s. Where it's, remember the song, signs, signs, everywhere there's signs? Well, picture you get an email, and it says, do not open this email. What do you want to do? You want to say, why? What's it going to do? What's, what, you, know, you get that curiosity there. Or the example of, of a, a sign on the grass. Do not walk on the grass. Well, you know what? Before that sign was there, before you even saw it, you probably were just going to keep walking down the sidewalk and not think about it. But now all of a sudden you see a sign, and you're like, well, who are they to tell me I can't walk on the grass? Or now you're thinking about the grass, and you're thinking, well, that grass actually looks pretty good. I wonder what it feels like to walk on it. But you hadn't even noticed it before. You see, that's the way we are with sin. And if we look at sin, I mean, if we look at following, pleasing God as following a list of rules and regulations, what ends up happening is we put all of our focus on the sin. And we sit there and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then what happens? Your mind start thinking, starts thinking about the sin, and next thing you know, you're enticed and you're drawn into the sin. Because apart from the Spirit of God, we cannot overcome and gain victory over sin. We're helpless. 
And what ends up happening is the law now incites us to even greater sin. And that's what Paul is showing us here. So posting a list of commandments on the refrigerator is not going to help you stop sinning. Let's go on and read verses 9 through 13 and see how Paul addresses this. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, this kind of, you know, if you start, try, try to follow this, it can get a little bit confusing here. But what Paul was saying, if you read this, what I just read, 9 through 13, all the way up 9 through 11, you'd be reading that thinking, wow, the law must be really bad. It incites us to sin, we can't follow it, and it's, you start thinking, well, what good is the law? Until Paul comes across verse 12, and what does Paul say in verse 12? He says the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, God's law is a good thing. God gave us his law, his righteous, his holy law, and intended it for our good. But what happened was Satan came and took that which was good and used it to condemn us because we can't fulfill it, and he also used it to incite us to even greater sin. So Satan, through sin, took that which was good and made it really bad. But the law itself is really good. But it's Satan and sin that has twisted it and has used it for evil purposes. So that's how Paul can come along. He can defend grace in Romans chapter 6, and he can defend the law in Romans 7. It was a good thing. God did not make a mistake by giving us the law. But what happens is, because of our sin natures within us, we're incapable of following the law. One of the things I really like is we get into this section from 9 through 13, and then actually as we go all the way through verse 25, we start seeing this internal struggle with the Apostle Paul, an intense struggle with sin. And one of the, one of the beautiful things I think about this is the Bible is so real. Here is this great Apostle, the Apostle Paul, probably all of us have him up on this pedestal, and what we see is he struggled intensely with sin just like you and me. The Bible is so real. But the Bible also gives us a wonderful example in the Apostle Paul of someone who was not content being freed from the law to go on sinning. As Paul said, may it never be. Paul, and we read through other places where he says he fought the good fight. And it says in other epistles that Paul wrote where he says, put off, and he lists these vices. But see, the key is not in our strength. And Paul's going to show us the key is through Jesus Christ alone. Do not be content with being a sinner, but put off these things, and the key comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pick up in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, 
For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me and the one who wants to do good. You see, Paul has this intense struggle going on that I think we can all relate with. And I want to just kind of give you a little bit of a, a sequential summary of this struggle that Paul's having. And I think if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can relate to this. What Paul is basically saying is, I love God, but I hate what I do. Can you just relate? Picture the sins that kind of are persistent in your life. You know, you really don't want to be doing them. And if you love Jesus Christ... When you fall back into that pattern of sin and, man, there it goes again, I fell again, it's that struggle. I love God, but I hate what I do. But what does Paul do next? Paul screams out. He cries out and he says, who will set me free from this struggle with sin? Even you this phrase, oh, wretched man that I am. You see, that's the key for us with Paul here. Paul realizes, man, I, I love God. I don't want to be committing this sin. How am I going to overcome it? And then he says, you know, who will free me from this struggle? And before I read verse 25, I'll just tell you what it says. The key is in verse 25, and it says that through victory, through Jesus Christ, I gain the victory to overcome sin. You see, thanks be to God, my victory comes through Jesus Christ, is how Paul said it. That's the final point that I want to give us this morning as we go through this message, is that you are victorious through Christ alone. Now, if you're taking notes... I want you to highlight, underline, bolden that phrase, Christ alone, because we so easily forget it. You know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you probably would at any time say, you know, I know that's true. I know it's not all about me. It's all about Jesus Christ. But think about what your actions look like. Think about how, here's two, th well, two ways to look at this. One, when you fall into sin and you fall and you just kind of, give in and it's that recurring sin in your life or whatever it may be, how do you feel about yourself? You see, we tend to live with this kind of like Eeyore complex with this cloud hanging over our head. Oh, woe is me. You know, I, I sinned again. I'm no good. And we start thinking that our identity is tied up in our sin. And that is so not true. You see, Satan would want you to believe that your identity is connected to your sin. Satan would want you to believe that your identity is that you are an adulterer, that you are a homosexual, that you're a liar, that you're an angry mother, that you're a terrible spouse, that you are, and it goes on and on, whatever your sin may be, Satan would want you to believe that that is your identity. And when you start believing that that's who you are, then all of a sudden that complex comes on, the guilt comes on, the depression comes on. But you see, that's not how Jesus Christ wants us to live because what we need to remember, on your best day, 
as you think you're following Jesus Christ faithfully. You're here at church, man. You are serving downstairs. You are giving financially. You're going on missions trips to New York City and saving 400 people. On your best day, you're not good enough. On your best day, you are no better than your worst day when you're falling into sin and you're feeling, woe is me. But you see, God did not give you death to the law so that you could keep on sinning. He gave you death to the law and unity with Christ so that you could now serve in newness of the Spirit. You see, that's so important for us to remember that God wants us to serve not in the flesh, not in our ability, but in newness of the Spirit. You see, Jesus Christ is the only answer. And our problem that we have is this battle with sin is going to last every day for the rest of your life. You know, you might have a sin today that's in your life, or maybe even, let's say there was a sin that a year ago, man, you were struggling with and it had been in your life, and you are able to turn from that sin. And I want to talk about what that looks like, turning. It's the same thing with repentance. If we have a sin in our life, say here's our sin over here. We have this sin in our life. Remember, it's not following a list of regulations. We can't look at that sin and say, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. You're putting all your focus on your sin, and I guarantee you, you're going to sin. But when we repent, what we do is we turn away from our sin, not to ourselves, but we turn to Jesus Christ, and we put our eyes upon Jesus Christ. And now, we're putting all of our focus on Christ, and maybe it's that sin that was a struggle with you in the past, and you are able, able to overcome it, and it's no longer necessarily a struggle for you. Praise God. That's what God wants us to do. But guess what? The victory was not yours. The victory was Christ's alone. Because here's the problem. You may overcome a sin in your life, but you know what's going to happen? Right around the corner, another sin is coming. Because until the day we are united with Christ and we're taken to glory, we're going to have an ongoing battle with sin. I had... Um, there was a, a guy, when I first got out of seminary, my very first pastorate, it was in Doylestown, and there was a man there who was an elder when I was on this, uh, came in as a new pastor. And at the time, he was probably in his mid-70s, and he had spent his entire career as a missionary in the Philippines. And he was just a really godly man who I appreciated so much. One of those older saints that you could just look up to. His name was Bill. And um, Bill went home to be with the Lord, I think, about three years ago at the age of 94. And he just poured himself into, especially those of us who were in ministry, younger people in ministry, he poured himself into us. Because he, he left the mission field, his wife had gotten ill, they had to come back from the Philippines, she, she eventually, she died, and Bill went on to live probably almost 20 years after that. And he just poured himself into the church and into young people in ministry, and I think about that to myself, and I think, well, what was the key to seeing somebody that you would say is mature in the faith? Are they any more godly than we are? And the answer to that question is no, because no matter how good we are, we can't be any more godly today than we are last week or next week, because all of our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ alone. But you see, when I look at somebody like Bill, what I saw was a maturity because 
I think he knew the key, and I'm going to highlight one word. And if you walk away with anything today, I want you to walk away just thinking about the word dependence. You are completely dependent upon Jesus Christ in this battle with sin. It's not about you. You can't do it yourself. But as Paul said, but praise be to God through Jesus Christ. And that dependence in yourself should do two things. One, it should keep you from feeling so overwhelmed with guilt that you want to just throw in the towel, that you want to just beat yourself up because you need to realize that's not your identity. You're a, you are a child of God who Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember that identity, but remember you're totally dependent upon Jesus Christ for it. And in those days when you're feeling spiritual victories, can you guys relate? You know, you go away on that weekend retreat and you are just flying high. I mean, you're on a spiritual high. Guess what? You're just as much of a sinner then as before you went on the retreat. And guess what? In about a couple days later, you're going to come crashing back down as sin comes into your life. But here's the key, though. Your dependence, oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that you are, who is going to save me from this battle of sin? Jesus Christ has already done it, if you have placed your faith in him. So our key in this battle with sin is to remember, I can't do it, but Jesus Christ already has. And Jesus wants to give you his victory because you can't earn it, but Jesus already has done it and he's conquered sin, he's conquered death and he wants to give it to you. And all that we need to do is be utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ and recognizing, man, this battle is not going to end until I go home to be in glory with God. So you better be ready for the battle that's coming ahead. And I want to just, um, I talked a lot about the personal aspect of this battle we're in it as a church as well. Folks, we are the body of Christ. And our battle with sin, you know what? We can't go out there. I made a joke about going out and saving 400 on a missions trip. You can't save one. But Jesus Christ can. And he wants to use you. So as you are dependent upon him, what people are going to see is the spirit of God living within you. And the fruit that comes out is nothing that you're producing but it's what God is producing within you. And God wants to use you, and it says, what, serving in the newness of the Spirit. And the same thing happens for us as a church as well. When we take this room full of people, the first service full of people, and we go out and we leave here, you know what? God wants us to go out and serve in the newness of Spirit. It's what it means that we are now missionally engaged as a church. We want to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ every single day of the week. Think about, if I point, just one person down here, think about the network of relationships that each of you has. And we multiply that throughout this room. We as a church are connected to so many people who need the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we are going out dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ to work in us and through us, then God is going to do some pretty incredible things. Not because we're so great, but because we're allowing him, as we cry out like Paul, who's going to save me? Jesus Christ is the answer. So as we leave this morning, I want to encourage all of us to remember your position and identity in Jesus Christ. You're a child of God. To remember that you are not the key to gaining victory in the Christian life, but Jesus Christ is. Surrender yourself to him be completely dependent upon him and allow him 
to work within you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can stop our striving. Lord, I know that as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are so prone to strive. We think that, Lord, that we are earning favor with you. We think that we are drawing closer to you because of what we do. Father, remove that from our lives. Remove any spiritual pride. Father, I know we can be judgmental to one another. We can put others down. We can think that we are better than they are because we may be experiencing just victory over certain sins in our own lives. And Lord, so much of that is pride. I pray that we would remember that we are completely dependent upon you. Father, we are, we are sinners today and we're going to be sinners until the day you take us home. And Father, help us to cry out for Jesus Christ. As we see this battle with Paul, Father, I thank you that Paul gave us the example of someone who is just one of the great apostles, yet he struggled with sin just like we do. Father, help us to fight the fight. Help us not to be content with going on sinning. But Lord, I pray that we would remember each and every day that we need to be so much more dependent upon Jesus Christ. Lord, do a great work within us. Father, help us to grow in our dependency as individuals and as a church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I send you out, I want to encourage you to remember to be dependent upon the Lord each and every day as we go out this week. Amen. strength.